Greetings, happy Friday. Welcome to the Steve Day Show Feedback Friday Podcast here on Westwood One, powered by CRTV. And this is when we go into some of the feedback that you've been sending us in recent days and weeks. And then we respond to your responses. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can send those in via email, last name spelled D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Todd and Aaron are here along for the ride. Don't forget our television show today, gentlemen. Of course, it's the Dace Group weekly weekend or weekend review, easy for me to say. Weekend review roundtable, you never want to miss it. It's always one of our most popular shows we do each and every week. And if you're not yet a subscriber to CRTV and you want to watch, CRTV.com is the website. Use my name as a promo code to subscribe. You'll get a discounted subscription. What kind of discount are we talking about? Well, what if I told you that this would cost you like a quarter a day? And not just for our show. Like, I got to believe, I I know we're not that good at this, guys, but I got to believe we're worth a quarter a day on an open market, don't you think? Uh, Like, if we just put our, if if we left CRTV and did this independently and just put this up on like a Patreon page and told people it cost you a quarter a day, could we at least get one person to do this for a quarter a day? One person? One person out of seven billion on earth that we're not related to, Aaron. I know where you're going with this, all right? Uh, is there one person on earth that would pay us a quarter of a day, a quarter a day for this? For mm. the smugness alone. A deed. Yeah. And that's not even throwing in Mark Levin, Phil Robertson, all the other personalities, Steven Crowder, all the other well, chocolatey goodness that we provide for you every day here at CRT. We're at least the 49th or 50th best show on CRT. No doubt. And there's only 14 shows, guys. Yeah. So I think that gives you a really good glimpse of exactly what we bring to the table here. You've redefined other programming. Yeah. So CRTV.com, promo code DACE is how you can subscribe if you're not yet a subscriber to CRTV. All right, gents, let's get to some feedback. Are you ready to go? Let's see who we've enlightened or just made irate this week. All right, let's get to it. This is from Alex from Minneapolis. And he writes, big thank you guys to the work you are doing. Um, Love what you guys' commentary and the stories you share about your families and your past. I found your, your podcast on iTunes about two months ago, and I've become a daily listener after searching for quite some time for somebody that would just do a conservative podcast that hadn't sold out and was just willing to call balls and strikes. After hearing you mention that you were an author, I decided to check out Rules for Patriots from the Public Library. What? I didn't know we were in the Public Library. That's, that's pretty cool. They still let us in? <laughs> do they know what's in that book? It's from a miracle. In Minneapolis? <laughs> Indeed. Somebody's, you know, it's a little bit like, um, did you guys see that college football story? You know, you're not supposed to tamper with another school's players. And Oregon State University, somebody in the in their football office sent a mailer directly to the football office at Oregon State University huh. to solicit their players. Or I'm sorry, Oregon State sent it directly to the football offices at the University of Hawaii. And it's addressed to the football office at Oregon at, at Hawaii University. 
directly asking Hawaii football players if they want to leave Hawaii and transfer to Oregon State. What? What were they thinking? Exactly. You're like somebody... Whoever put that mailing label on that package is getting fired tonight, right? Well, somebody at the Minneapolis Library better update the old resume, careerbuilder.com, right? (laughs) You let us into the Minneapolis Library, and that's be a fireable offense. Uh, Anyway, I checked your book out at the public library while reading the back cover. I was surprised to find an endorsement of the book from none other than the commander-in-chief himself, Donald J. Trump. I know the book was published long before he became a nominee for the presidency, and I'm confident you have touched on this topic before, but would you be willing to elaborate on what went into his endorsement of the book? I'd be greatly interested to hear the story behind this. Well, Alex, we have talked about this in the past, so I won't rehash the whole thing, all right? But just to give you a Cliff's Notes version, um, shortly after, like, Three minutes after Mitt Romney lost the 2012 presidential election, I was still doing a I was doing a nighttime show for Salem, and then I left Salem and went to USA Radio Network because they offered me a chance to do date parts. But then they went into financial trouble and couldn't build the show, and Salem brought me back to do nighttime again. All right, so this was the first time I was doing a syndicated nighttime show for Salem, and we were on the air election night as Romney was losing. Three minutes after I got off the air, my phone began to go insane because people are already getting ready to run for president. In fact, let me tell you this little nugget, okay? I've never said who it was before, but I'm going to say now because I think it's okay to say it. January of 2012, um, I get a call. It's actually on... The Iowa caucuses hadn't happened yet. I'm watching Michigan play Virginia Tech in the Sugar Bowl, in the, the old BCS. This is before the college football playoff. I'm watching, so this was maybe like New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, actually. I get a call during the game, and it's an out-of-state number, and I'm like, either somebody's dead, somebody is going to die for calling me in the middle of this game. <laughs> Okay, or it must be really important. Uh, so I realized, you know, this is why God invented DVR. So I hit pause on the game, and I pick up the phone, and it is Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal's chief of staff, and he is want, and he wants to invite me on behalf of the governor. My Lions were going to make the had just made the NFL playoffs for the first time since before the Matt Millen era. First time in the 21st century, actually, since Bobby Ross was the coach, 1999, I think it was. And um, their wild card game was going to be against the New Orleans Saints in the Superdome. And he wanted to, the governor was inviting me and uh, a guest to sit with him in his suite at the NFL playoff game between the Saints and the Lions. And they'd be happy to pick up any expenses or anything else along those lines. Now, I'd been, I've been offered this kind of stuff before. Uh, when Haley Barber was thinking of running for president, he actually invited me to come down to, um, the I think it was the Mississippi Delta or something, for a week, all-expense-paid trip to see how the state had been completely rebuilt since Katrina under his watch. I mean, I've, I've, I've gotten 
you know, lots of opportunities like this. And and I've always said no only because I don't have a problem saying yes and then doing and then saying and doing whatever I was going to do anyway. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. I just don't. Apparently the other side of the equation kind of does. <laughs> Okay. Like I have no problem saying this was really nice of you. Thanks. <laughs> going you back, didn't understand the parenthetical part of this. Know. I'm like, you know, there's, I don't do implications, you know. So since it wasn't specified that this was part of the equation, I've got no problem whatsoever of saying, hey, that was really nice of you. Going back home and doing whatever I was going to do anyway. I realized though after I tried that once. Like the Republican leadership in Iowa once took me to lunch at 801 Grand, which here in Des Moines is the number one steakhouse, right? And they took me to lunch there, and it was funny because all the staff there knew who I was and like listened to the show and stuff. So I was like talking to the dishwasher and the server and the guy and the cook, and we go into this massively private suite. You know, we're sitting around and having a nice lunch. It's way overpriced, but it's really good food. I'm not paying for it. They are. And we're having a good time and everything. And when we got done, I we I looked at him and I said, I just want you guys to know, I really enjoyed this. When I walk out of here, though, it's it's not going to change anything I say on my radio show. I just I just need you guys to keep your promises to my audience. And if you do, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you guys in office and find more people like you. And if you don't, I'm going to make you hate life from 4 to 7 p.m. on WHO radio. I just told them that right to their face. I didn't get invited to lunch again after that. Uh, and so it was pretty clear to me. Mama didn't raise no dummy, all right? It was pretty clear that the implication with such offers is this will somehow persuade you one way or the other. And so since that lunch at 801 Grand, I have said no to everything that has been asked of me. Unless, with one exception, if you bring me in and you're telling me we, are, we want your, your intellectual opinion on this and you don't have, and this is not meant to persuade you. So, for example, in January of 2015, Ted Cruz called and, and asked me to come to Houston to sit in on his inner sanctum brainstorming meeting as they were considering whether he was going to run for president or not. And he was very explicit. This is not, we won't, we won't ask you to support us. What we really want to know, what is the ground like in Iowa? And you are, have per, my permission to be as brutally honest as you, as you would like. Under only those stated conditions. I'll be there tomorrow. Yes, then I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll come. You had me at brutally honest. <laughs> yes. All right, I'll come. Plus it's Houston in January. Houston, January, brutal honesty. Okay. In fact, when the whole thing broke up, I'm like, I thought we were just getting started here, guys. I got all kinds of other truth bombs to drop. <laughs> and hey, is that pigs in a blanket? By golly, it is. <laughs> all right, so unless the rules are stated up front, I have just always said no to these things. But when Bobby Jindal's chief of staff offered me to come down to the Superdome to watch the Lions in their first playoff game in over a decade, I really tried to talk myself into that one. But I didn't. I turned it down. My yeah. greatest concern for you in that environment is your ability to read 
all the bad that is coming out of your lines and then you just start saying it out loud and they'd start thinking is he some sort of dark <laughs> wizard or something this is a little do we really want this yes. guy's support uh, do we want him speaking to us calling anybody on the phone speaking for us especially is that what we're looking for here yes so I, I turned that down now why did I bring it up in the in the context of the Trump conversation because Jindal calling me and, and offering me that sort of a of an invite before the 2012 Iowa caucus has it even happened yet, told me he didn't think it, the odds were Republicans were going to win in the fall. And he wasn't alone. I had numerous other people that ended up running in 2016 make overtures to me and already try and get in ahead of the game heading into 2016 because almost nobody thought Romney was going to win. because it's And historically, they were right. I mean, 70-some-odd percent of the time, I think it's about 71% of the time, historically in America, incumbent presidents win re-election. And if you look at the last couple of incumbent presidents that did not win re-election, George H.W. Bush in 1992, Jimmy Carter in 1980, they have something in common. You know what it was? Primary challengers. The last time an incumbent president without a primary challenge didn't win re-election in America. You know, 1968 doesn't count because Lyndon Baines Johnson saw that he was going to lose and decided not to seek re-election. So you go back, now you're Eisenhower, Truman, a two-term president, FDR, after winning a fourth term, died in office. Herbert Hoover from our home state of Iowa, 1932, guys. It's the last time a president... Did not an incumbent president did not win re-election without facing a primary challenge. So the the odds it's difficult to beat an incumbent president. And so Bobby Jindal don't don't get mad at him. He wasn't alone. There were several other candidates that ended up running that were also looking to get a head start in Iowa, thinking Romney was not going to win. Well, shortly after Romney lost, my phone was ringing in our old studio. People are already ready to go. Hit the ground running for 2016. And one of the people to immediately reach out to me was Trump through his original political, his, his original chief political operative, Sam Numberg. And Sam and I are still pals now. I just talked to Sam the other day, in fact. We talk or text on a regular basis. Sam used to work for, Sam worked for Roger Stone, who I'm not a huge fan of, but he also worked for people like Jay Sekulow and others who work within the conservative base. So he kind of knew that Trump needed to actually reach out to conservatives to have any chance here. And that's why you saw Trump at CPAC and at the NRA and talking to conservative leaders and conservative groups, you know, all the stuff that Romney didn't want to have to do. He just wanted you to come vote for him because he was the Republican nominee. Trump was willing to, to make relationships. And, you know, I went out, Salem actually brought me out to audition in January of 2013. Salem actually brought me out to audition for the afternoon drive slot. I was competing with uh, five or six other people. I don't know who everybody else was. I do know who two of the other competitors were. Eric Metaxas was one. Um, and Congressman, former Congressman Joe Walsh was the other. And he ended up getting the job. It came down to me and Joe Walsh and they gave the job to him. And uh, when I, so they brought me out to New York City for a week to do afternoon drive on their New York City radio station to audition for afternoon drive there. And it's, it's, you know, it's not necessarily a job I wanted, but I wanted it. Meaning I did not, my family, we didn't want to move to New York. But it's also in our line of work really hard when 
there's only three major companies. Salem is one of them. And they offer you afternoon drive in New York City. It reminds me of what Mike Huckabee once said about the vice presidency. When I asked him in, during 08 if he wanted to be McCain's VP when his name was being banded about. And Mike's like, well, Steve, the vice presidency is that job that no one actually wants, but no one can turn it down. That's kind of how I felt about afternoon drive in New York City. I didn't want the job. I just knew I could not turn it down if it was offered to me. Well, while I was out there, this is before Sam Numberg and I got to be pals. Sam, Sam's like, hey, I should take you to dinner. And, you know, we'll go to Ruth Chris over here in Manhattan. I'll pick up the tab and we'll just have a good time. So I, I, I took Sam up on his offer. And uh, after that, I called Rona Graff, who was Trump's assistant and still is. And, what, and it was before my first day on the job or first day in my tryout, and I asked Rona, thinking there was no chance this would happen on this short of notice. In fact, the state Republican Party was trying to was meeting at Trump Tower at that time. They were trying to get Trump to run for governor against Cuomo because they didn't have a candidate. And I asked Rona if Trump would be willing to come on. I know it's short, short notice, but I know it would make a huge impression my very first day on drive time in New York City if Trump was our main event. I thought there was no shot, but I'll ask anyway. You know my motto, you have not because you ask not, right? So I'll ask for anything. Because all you can do is tell me no. And all you did if you told me no is you didn't give me something I already didn't have. So since I have no feelings to hurt, I'm totally fine asking you just about anything. I am a robot. He is. Days, Tron, 3000. Danger, Will Robinson. Yes. Uh, but lo and behold, man, she called me back like in an hour. Trump and Trump was like, name your time. And he came on. And I have to tell you somewhere, I think BuzzFeed or somebody had that interview for a while. You would not believe if you listen to that interview, this is the same guy. Totally in control, man. Totally likable. It, the news had just come out that day that, that Florida had surpassed New York in the census. And he was really ticked about what was happening to his beloved home state, how many families they're losing, businesses they're losing. And I hate to say it, it sounded like a president of the United States, guys. You know, there wasn't any uh, sleepy son of a you-know-what Chuck Todd. There wasn't crying Chuck Schumer, lying Ted, little Marco. None of that. There wasn't any of that. You know, that when you listen to that for the first time, you're like, how'd this guy get to be a billionaire? What you heard was, you, you, it, this sounded like a guy that you could see, hey, we think he's got the answers, put him in charge. He's kind of got this. He was on it, man. And he couldn't have been nicer. And from there, I could get him on my show whenever I wanted. I could talk to him pretty much anytime I, and I, and, and I, anytime I asked, because I, I'm not one to abuse these things, you know? Like I learned with my wife early in our marriage, don't ask for a bunch of little stuff all the time. Like for months when your wife asks you, do you want that? You want that shirt? Say no. And then like when that brand new home theater system you want comes out, that's when you put your chips on the table. Can I get witness on that, Erzin? That's pretty much my natural default that's anyways. Another, I, I'm a caveman. So. That's another lesson, a future marriage lesson to you, young Erzin, right? Or young uh, McIntyre mm-hmm. over there, okay? Okay. When she asked you like, you know, I mean, do you want to pick the movie? Say no for like months. Oh no, defer for like months. Mm-hmm. And then, like, when that new LED or that new 4K TV or something comes out, right, you're like, I'll take one of those. Your wife doesn't listen to the show, does she? <laughs> no. <laughs> 
No. Just so free, divulging all the marital secrets. Yes. And look what how about I the vault, out. man? And look how I turned out. <laughs> Follow me. Arr. Yes. So, um, out of this, I was, I, within a, and so I go out to dinner with Sam Nunberg, and we're having a great time. And then he's like, so let's say Trump was serious about running this time. Because remember, he decided he was going to run in 2012 and then decided not to. And nobody still thought he was talking about running again in 2016, but nobody believed he was telling the truth. And Nunberg's like, if you were setting up a presidential campaign, starting in Iowa, like, who would you call? And I'm not like a big drinker. Like, I'm not a teetotaler. You know, I don't mind having a glass of wine or something, but I'm just not a big drinker by nature. I am, though, a big carnivore. And after I had pretty much drowned myself in this uh, center cut ribeye at Ruth Chris that was larger than my face, okay, I got meat sweats. In other words, my resolve is gone, guys. <laughs> my defenses are down. Okay. He could have just taken me home right then. I was done. I was out. Okay. And I just start spilling every state secret I have, man. I start dropping names. And I start getting calls like six months later from Matt Boyle at Breitbart. He's like, hey, man, did you hear they hired so-and-so? Yeah, I wonder where they got that. They, got, they, they literally went out. They, they literally talked to everybody I mentioned. And they even hired several of them. And that's when I knew they were serious. Because I only gave them, you know, people that if I was going to run a campaign for somebody, these are the people I'd want to work with that I knew are really good. You were the mustard seed of the Trump campaign. I am somewhat to blame for whatever this has become. <laughs> it could be, you know, tenths of a percent, one percent, two percent. I'm somewhat to blame for it, though, no doubt. Uh, well, through this interaction, I was working on Rules for Patriots. My publisher thought it'd be cool if I could get Trump to endorse it. So, again, I... I Sent an email to Rona Graf and said, "Do you think the president, or do you think Mr. Trump would uh, endorse this?" Although I never called him Mr. Trump. Like the first time they were like, "You should call." He likes to be called Mr. Trump. I would never call him that. It, it's I just do you think Donald would be willing to endorse this? And she emailed me back a little while later and said, "Mr. Trump says write the endorsement you want him to say, and if he likes it, then um, I'll go ahead and give you confirmation that you can use it." So the endorsement on the back of Rules for Patriots, which says, uh, if you want to be able to say you're fired to the people plunging this great country of ours down the drain, this book is for you. Steve Dace is one of the rising stars in conservative media, and he's able to tackle serious subject matter in a winsome way that's so easy to understand. Even a Washington, D.C. politician can get it. I wrote every word of that. I sent it off to Rona Graf. A few hours later, she gives me an email back. Mr. Trump gives you a thumbs up, go with it. And that's how the endorsement ended up in the book, guys. Your thoughts on that little story? Uh, well, it, it just goes to show what a crazy trip the last couple of years. I mean, that's on your, you must look at, I mean, I still have moments when I wait and you just, turn on the phone and you see Twitter for the first time it, 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 and you say to yourself wow Trump is really president right now <laughs> I, I mean really I'm not mm -hmm. they just hit it's you it's happening guys yeah. <laughs> and and then that and you dial that up to 11 when it comes to you because it's just it, it is surreal to me as I've been I'm almost finished with the first draft of the manuscript of, of my next book and a lot of it is stemmed, it. a lot of it is stemmed from my own experiences 
and reliving these experiences, it is surreal to me that this stuff is, is my life. Because guys, I go home, like our buddy Constantinus Roditis, got to have a Constantinus Roditis name drop. Apparently, in every Steve Day Show podcast now, mm-hmm. uh, he's like our—he's like Paul on Cheers, not like a main character, but it's but he got name dropped like in every episode. Remember Paul? All right, so he tweeted to me today. He said, uh, "In other words, you've always been other programming." Yeah, guys, I live in the same house in the same neighborhood I lived in when I was started on WHO locally in Des Moines. The new car I bought myself last year was a 2014. I make a nice living, but. I'm not rich. I, I go to D.C. and New York out of necessity. And you guys know what I'm like before I have to go. I don't like... Although I should say this. I've grown to love New York City. It's a blast. But, man, if you aren't rich, I don't know why anybody could or would live there. But if you're rich and can afford somebody to Uber drive you and stuff around, dude, it's, it's a great town. Washington, I have, like, no regard for on any level whatsoever. And you can, you can smell the sulfur when you're there. And I got to go back again in June. <laughs> but um, it is surreal to me. When I get done here, I'm going to go home and I'm going to mow my lawn either tomorrow, today or tomorrow. I actually figured out I'd change the oil in my lawnmower last week for the first time ever. I'm nice. like, I felt like my voice get deeper again, you know? <laughs> so it is surreal to me that you'll see me out there mowing my lawn in my moderately nice home in suburban Des Moines, Iowa. And yet I've had all these experiences and know all these people it is as surreal as it is to you you know from the outside it's really weird to me because if 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 i don't put the seat down and bring the trash can up when i get home i'm gonna hear about it from my wife you know and she's not gonna care like hey man donald trump endorsed my book don't yell at me about putting the seat down you know what i'm saying it's just she doesn't give a rip my kids don't care like about any of this I mean, they kind of every now and then they kind of think it's cool that people some people know who their dad is but we've gone out of our way just to raise them in a typical central iowa environment they're just not if i tried to have a conversation with my son about any of this stuff he'd be like dad did you know there are six different forms of lightsaber fighting that's literally what he would say okay i just so there is nothing else in my life to indicate that this is my life except when I do this for a living. Everything else is a typical, it's a John Mellencamp song. It's a typical life in, a, in, in central Iowa, you know? True. It's crazy. It is crazy. It's... All right, let's get to another one. Um, I'm a pastor in a family of churches called the Calvary Family of Churches. We are strongly committed to starting new churches and restarting dying ones. As a family of churches, we have churches all across the nation. We're particularly focused in Denver. In order to create a sense of unity among the churches, we're going to hold our first national conference. I was asked to do one of the breakout sessions in the conference where I would be teaching lay people who attend our member churches. My wife and I have recently had our first child, causing my heart to break in regards to the issue of abortion. So much so that I would like to be more involved in the pro-life movement and involve the church in it as well. Since you're well-versed in this area, I'd value your opinion on some questions. Number one, what role should the church play in the pro-life movement? I'm particularly wondering about the political aspects of this movement, but would love to hear your spiritual thoughts as well. I'm going to take these one at a time. Um, And this is from Pastor John Reed, uh, who says he appreciates our show's honesty and integrity. Thank you, John. So, John, here's what I'm going to share with you, honestly, from my own experience, so you can be better at this than I've been. 
The church, not your pro-life organizations. The church needs to lead this cause. And just as abolitionist societies were formed out of the church, the, the local pro-life organizations should be formed out directly out of congregations or out of an assembly or an association of congregations. And the leaders of those pro-life organizations should be held accountable by the local church or that consortium of churches as if they're a board of elders holding a pastor accountable. If that does not happen, then you're going to have what we have now, which is the overwhelming number of pro-life organizations are front groups for the Republican Party, whether they intend to be or not. Even they either are openly shills, like National Right to Life, which I can promise you, if you're a conservative that wants to challenge an incumbent rhino anywhere in America um, for office in Washington, National Right to Life will oppose you. And they will side with the rhino, no matter how many times he voted to fund Planned Parenthood. I've seen it in my own career. Every time we've gotten a candidate to go after a rhino incumbent, National Right to Life goes against us every time. They're with Mitch McConnell every time. Every time. I don't, and I know you're going to email me why... You know what, man? I, 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 I've done so many shows on that, and I'm at the point now, I don't even care what the answer is. It just is what it is. Just know it going in. And so that, that, that's what happens when we outsource these things from the church to the political system. They will either openly become shills for the system, or they will de facto do it because they don't have the moral rudder holding them in place. The, the cornerstone isn't there you know, forcing people to look at questions that they probably don't want to look at from a theological or moral perspective and strictly just look at it from a political one. And they'll start signing off on bad legislation because they think, well, if we, if we don't do this, the Republicans will lose. Well, are you a pro-life organization or are you a Republican Party get out the vote organization? Choose one. Choose one. Preach. So these all need to come either directly out of an individual congregation or by golly, even better, if you have a consortium or an alliance of churches in a community that are committed to this, then they need to be like abolitionist societies in the 19th century that came out of consortiums of churches. And then the leaders of those groups, I would not suggest having pastors run the political outreach of the organization. I would suggest, though, pastor or pastors appointing who does and holding that person accountable to the core mission. And that way, the pastor or pastors stay true to their core mission, which is the gospel, not activism. That makes sense? It does. And I would just say the way he described it, I'm primarily interested in the political end, but I, you know, I'll take whatever you have to say about the spiritual. I mean, just don't back into it that way. This is all about the spiritual. We it, get yes, that wrong yes. all the you time. You need to concoct political strategy based off the spiritual yes. reality. You are up against a wicked stronghold here. You are not arguing... You're not the Chamber of Commerce in 1981 arguing with the Teamsters that Reagan's tax cuts will be good for job growth. When you have a society as educated and enlightened as ours that is doing this to its own children, we're not even, we're not yeah. even, we're not even you know, ancient Israelites who grew up in polytheistic communities surrounded by pagans who succumb to the spirit of the age and go down to the Valley of Ben-Hinnom and throw our babies into the, into the fire from Molech. That's hideous enough. What we're doing is worse. We're actually looking at our children in the womb. We're seeing what's going on there with our own two eyes. We know that that's a child, and we're doing it anyway. 
So this goes to show you this isn't about tactics. It's not about strategy. Those things don't, it doesn't start there. This is a demonic stronghold that has a grip on our culture. And you damn well better bring with you the full armor no of God. Doubt. I'm talking power of Christ compels you kind of stuff. And, and, and your political strategies, your real world applications of how to confront this must always begin with the acknowledgement and the premise that you are in a spiritual battle. You're not going to reason with people to stop doing this. Reason is on our side and they're still doing it. All the reason is on our side. Nurses walked in and out of Alfie Evans' hospital room for a week and saw the kids smiling and breathing while they didn't give him any food or water. People are denying reason where the devil is involved. Reason is absent. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, he asked, what organizations are doing the best job of being abolitionist of abortion, not just pro-life, but um, that we could be involved with on a national level or specifically in Denver? Save the storks. That is the that is a great organization. Yeah. See, what I love is the idea of 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 having homes for unwed mothers like mine was. Organizations like Save the Storks that are literally going to the streets and showing pregnant women, uh, you know, that you have you are carrying a child. Do you recognize that? Let's show you your own sonogram, your own ultrasound. See, I think, I think if we had spent the last 40, taken all of the energy we poured into legislation, you can make an argument that the only real big pro-life win we've had, really, on a national level, is the Hyde Amendment. And yet they're still funding Planned Parenthood anyway, and the Hyde Amendment has exceptions for abortion, or I'm sorry, for rape and incest. That's, that's all we really have to show for 40 years of this. Stop and think about that. The, 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 the homosexual movement traces its lineage back to what? The Stone Riots or whatever in San Francisco in the early 70s? Is that something? Like, right around the time of Roe v. Wade. All, and what have they done in the 45 years or 40 years since then? Revolutionized, radicalized the culture. What have we done? And we got 100 times the people they do. What have we done? Not, not that. Not that, actually. Not that. So... Before I started thinking about lobbying legislators and stuff, Pastor John, I'd start doing street-level activism like what Aaron just suggested. Because I promise you, if we had devoted none of the, if we had taken all of the efforts we have poured into legislation in the, within the Republican Party the last 45 years, and taken all of that energy and put it in street-level activism, being there for unwed mothers, showing them what they're, that they're really killing their child, providing aftercare for them and their children after the baby is born, helping them place their child with a home if they, if they aren't ready to be a mom. You know, if, if, we had, if we had done that level of ministry, we'd be so much, the laws of this country, we would have had a far bigger impact upon what they say now about the sanctity of life than, we have, than, they, than they currently do. All we've done is get Republicans elected under false pretenses for 45 years. That's all we did. Yay. Exactly. So look at it, John, holistically, brother. Don't just see this as, what do I do at the legislature? That's your last stop, actually. Yeah. That's your last stop. That's where you and go. it might be to burn it down. <laughs> That's where you go when you won the street battle, right? Like, look at it. Look at, let's put it in terms of warfare, John. The war ends when you take the other side's capital. 
You don't just invade the capital on day one, right? We kind of had to work our way from North Africa to Berlin. We didn't just, you know, decide, hey, we're tired of losing to the Nazis. Let's invade Berlin. We had to work our way there. Because if we invade Berlin, and even if we win, they still have all that surrounding territory, and they now just have us encircled, and they kill us. You work your way to the capital. And the same thing happens here. Win this on a street level. Get the churches involved in caring for single moms, unwed mothers, unwanted, unexpected pregnancies, aftercare, build community, build family. Dispense with the lie that we only care about the child after it's born. Prove that's not true. Start there. Start on a one-on-one street level. Have churches, have your, your association of churches, John, do a sermon series where your whole series, your whole consortium is doing a series on who was Margaret Sanger. And don't do it like on a Sunday night. Well, this is an extra class we're offering and one-tenth of the church congregation will show up. Do it on Sunday morning when they're all sitting there. Make them all see it. That's what the abolitionist societies did. They didn't say around and say, hey, now that we're done with church on Sunday, come back tonight and we're going to talk about slavery. That's not what they did. (laughs) That's not what the revolutionary pastors did. They weren't like, we're going to talk about liberty on Tuesday at 8 o'clock when you guys are done telling your crops. Stuck their nose in it. That's right. They said, hey, uh, open up your Bibles. Is it 2 Corinthians 3.16 or 3.23? Something like that. It says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It's something like that. And they did it on a Sunday morning when they were all sitting there and confronted him with it right then and there. So, I mean, I, I would start on a one-on-one community building, church discipling, mission, missiology. We want to be there for these moms sort of a level. That's where I would start. And I'd put my priorities on legislative battles. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say don't do any of it, but I would move it. I, it, I, it would not be number one on my priority list. It'd be below all the things I just mentioned. And just to show the power of that, there is a doctor, I believe a doctor, he might not even be a doctor, but a man in China who, uh, because of the one-child policy and antipathy, sometimes if the the babies were uh, girls and just for other reasons, he, he started just to bring your babies to me. Drop yes. the drop box. Drop the and drop we, box. Yeah. They, they made a movie about yeah. the guy. There is no yeah. far, the the Catholic Church, uh, excuse me, the the Christian Church has to live underground there unless it's officially sanctioned so it, it, it's it's it, it speaks directly and yet we know his name steve and we know his ministry mm-hmm. because he did it according to the rules that you talked about it wasn't part of some sort of uh, formal program or anything like that he simply was a disciple he's got one more question and looking at the time i think we're only going to get to these two emails um but they're both good ones number three what other resources should i know about that would be helpful in promoting a pro-life agenda let me give you a book you should get and should have all of your church leaders read it it's by a buddy of mine who used to run georgia right to life his name is dan becker and it's called personhood um get that book it'll give you a really good idea of what is a holistic pro-life argument and because here's the thing, all of our all of our legislation, all of our political activism has to point towards a goal. 
Now, we say our stated goal is to overturn Roe. But almost every piece of legislation that we have put forth since Casey in 1992 has not challenged Roe. It has actually affirmed Roe. It has been to try and limit the amount of abortions within the boundaries of Roe v. Wade. We have done the Stephen Douglas option, not the Abraham Lincoln one, guys. We're doing the Missouri Compromise. We're trying to limit the size and scope and evils of slavery. We're not trying to end it. And so if you want Roe v. Wade overturned, then you have to beg the question that could overturn it. And the only question I believe that overturns it is, when does life begin? When is a life a life? And all of our talking points, all of our legislation, like we should never use the term fetus. We know what fetus medically means. We know that. But the other side has co-opted that and conditioned the culture into thinking. Fetus is some clinical, sterile medical term. That's why I love what the pro-life organizations in Iowa, in my home state, are, have been for the last two years. They've been using this messaging, hashtag, she's a baby. It's a baby. It's a child. Use that language. You want to prick the conscience. Force people to see what they're actually doing here. If you, want to, if you want to get rid of anti-Semitism in Germany, don't call people by their serial numbers. Call them people. That's my neighbor. That's my friend. That's my brother. That's my cousin. That's my business partner. That's my buddy. That's my wife. That's my husband. Similarly, if you want to get rid of declassifying human children, don't call them a fetus. Don't use the other side's terminology. If you want people to see him as a person, as a child, as a baby, call him one. I hope those are some good starting points for you, John. Godspeed in uh, what you want to accomplish. And, you know, I uh, just to put in a little plug, if you don't mind, I do pro-life speaking when I get a chance all over the country. If I can help you guys in any way, John, feel free to contact me. All right? You obviously know my email address. Final thoughts, gentlemen, go. I would say, just going back to the point I made about his initial letter about talking, I'm primarily interested in politics. Uh, I I think it speaks to what a lot of us do. Uh, we have good intentions about how we want to get involved. But uh, one of my uh, favorite magazines started by uh, Father John Newhouse, First Things. The title is chosen for a very good reason. You got to have, as and Steve has a version of that. You got to have your closed hand and your open hand. Make sure you are uh, deadly clear about what belongs in that closed hand, and do not relent in keeping that as your lodestar. Aaron, yeah, well said. Um, we only have a limited time in this world, and if it's not obvious to us now, if you've been following. Um, following just the state of our culture, the state of our politics, there are some things that are much more worthwhile than others. Right now, legislation is not worthwhile as it pertains to the pro-life movement, unless it's actually advancing something. For the for the vast majority, for the most part, legislation, just the way it's usually been crafted, and politics right now is not worthwhile. That doesn't mean we shouldn't abandon it altogether, but it's not. It should not be the fifty-one percent that we spend our time and effort on. Uh, the fifty-one percent, meaning the majority of our time, should be spent on actually winning hearts and minds, and you do that at the street level. So that's the that's the big takeaway that I would have from this. 
Well, we love you guys. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Have a great weekend. We are going to be back again on Monday. Actually, you guys are going to be back on Monday. I got to take my oldest down to film a scene or two for a movie. And then I'll be back again on Wednesday. That is, I'm going to admit, it's a daddy moment. We're cool. John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like you. 